Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And welcome to part two of our look at women in the advertising agency. In the last episode, we talked about the history of women, specifically white women, in the industry. And now we're going to hop forward to look at the landscape today because things aren't all that great, (laughs) shall we say. Yeah, Kristen and I were exchanging research links and sources leading up to today. And there was a bit of commentary on how depressing all the headlines were. Um, Well, yeah, so so many sad headlines. I know that I hopped into this hoping like, well, I'm sure, you know, there's going to be the typical talk about like male dominated this and, you know, sexism that. But surely there's like a lot of great stuff to talk about. Well, uh, for the landscape today, not so much. I mean, I think that there is uh, some stuff to be optimistic about. There's a lot more conversation happening today about women's exclusion from the higher ranks of the ad industry. Um, there's a lot of acknowledgement for where women are shining. Women are outnumbering men in many sectors of advertising and marketing. Um, and there's a lot of conversation around uh, changing the industry's whole culture in terms of uh, – Family leave, paid family leave, um, making the culture more friendly to people with families. But so many things are still just so rough. And before we get into that rough stuff, why don't we break down some ad agency departments to give folks an idea of the type of work that's happening in advertising? Um Not surprisingly, going into advertising, you would usually have a business or communication background. Um, You might have an understanding of psychology, design, writing and journalism, changing technology. It's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, so some different departments and areas of advertising include account management. You're basically the person who works for the agency. It's your job to get the best work done for the client, but still... Uh, at a profit for the agency. You've got account planning, which is the person who makes sure that the consumer's perspective is fully considered when advertising is being developed. Uh, that person probably does a lot of research into consumer psychology and behavior. So I feel like Kristen and I would really shine. We're, we're pros at research. Uh, and then you've got the creative department. So these are the people who are actually taking the ideas and imagery and the word parts and stringing them together into a beautiful pizza of uh, of an ad. I love that. A pizza ad. They make uh, the pizza. They, it's a stuffed crust, uh, multi-toppinged thing that gets you to buy stuff. So in this analogy, Don Draper is a pizza pie maker. Yes. He is Papa John. He's like, imagine pizza <laughs> on a counter. Cats looking at it. That's all I got. That's, yeah, I, yeah, I I got nothing. Yeah. Um, the creative department, uh, I I was in an in-house, a company's in-house marketing department, and I was on the creative team as a writer. And how was it? It was so fun. Was uh, that sarcasm? Maybe. 
Well, what kind of what kind of stuff though did you did you do? Was it just sort of a campaign would come up from creative and you would tippy type the words? Basically, the marketing representatives in the department would work with the client, which was really just another department in the company because again we were in house. They would figure out what they needed to promote or drive traffic to and would set up a campaign working with us as the creative team. So I would write or edit the copy for something, working closely with my graphic designer buddies who would then make everything look really nice. Although my creative director would kill me if she heard me sum it up as, they make it look real nice, (laughs) uh, because she frequently complained about people who dismissed creative teams as just making things look pretty. Yeah, because you're also making pizza, right? Because you're also making ad pizza. Yeah. Yeah. So you and in, in your job, you would be writing the pizza menu. Yeah. Okay. Totally. I might be giving you the ingredient list. For Excellent. Sure. Yeah, I love this metaphor. A lot is easier to understand if you just put it in <laughs> pizza terms, I'm telling you. For sure. Well, you also have in um, our, our pizza parlor, the media department, which is responsible for placing ads where it will reach the right people at the right time in the right place in a cost effective way. So, for instance, you might not want to buy ad space in GQ for tampons. Sure. And if uh, you are advertising something like the latest smartphone, uh, maybe it's better to advertise on a website than on a a newspaper page. Or maybe just a brochure you kind of leave out on the <laughs> sidewalk and hope someone picks up. I'm going to send you a postcard about the iPhone. And finally, we have interactive marketing. Um, the opportunities in this are biggest in areas of design, marketing, and computer programming. Uh, agencies, of course, these days need computer-based designers and programmers, as well as strategists who understand how marketers can use interactive media creatively and effectively. And um, I actually know some folks who are in really cool interactive marketing where they are designing experiences and ah. using a lot of technology and a lot of uh, like virtual reality and augmented reality to do that. Yeah. So advertising is not simply designing something or simply just telling people they need to go buy the thing. There is a lot, as you can see, a lot of strategy and psychology and technology that's all wrapped up in working in the ad industry. And there are a lot of women working in the ad industry. Uh, women make up nearly half of all ad industry employees. And things are pretty gender balanced if you look at account management and services, uh, media planning and buying, and women outnumber men in media agencies, marketing and strategic planning. So... All is well, right? Totally. Everything's great, especially since we're starting to see more women being hired as CEOs. Like, I'm episode over. What are we even talking about? Yeah. Why are we complaining? We're always victimizing ourselves, like those <laughs> men's rights advocates say. Those men are right. They were right the whole time. Well, if it sounds vague to just say more women are coming into jobs, uh, it's because... Frankly, the industry's doing a pretty poor job at policing itself. There are really not a lot of solid numbers out there by which to judge progress. So if you're like, I'm interested in learning how many women there were in 1965 versus 95 versus 2005, well, like, sister, good luck. Um, now you do have a few groups crunching the numbers. 
Not surprisingly, they are groups focused on diversity. You have the 3% Conference, which is named for the estimate of female creative directors in 2010, back when the group was formed. Uh, you've got uh, the Advertising Women of New York, which should sound familiar to you. It's an industry group that we talked a lot about in our first episode. Which was founded because the Advertising League didn't allow women Correct, Amundo. Uh, you have the four A's, which is a trade association, and the 30% club, which is not necessarily advertising specific, but it's a group of business leaders who are trying to increase women's representation on S&P 500 boards to 30% by the end of 2020. So it took people with a special interest, and that special interest being no longer having advertising being just like lily white and dudish. Uh, to try to get these numbers in hand to help enhance diversity and therefore creativity. And we have seen, you know, the dial move for the 3% conference, for instance. Uh, you know, it was 3% in 2010. Now it's closer to 11%. So we're in double digits. <laughs> Huzzah! <laughs> Just barely. Um, and ad veteran Avi Dan, who is a dude, uh, credits client boards with pressuring Madison Avenue to hire more women in general. Uh, agencies, he writes, uh, are warming to the idea that maybe it's not a good idea to always have men-only pitch meetings, an entire team of dudes walking in to pitch something, whether it is uh, something targeted toward men or whether it is tampons. And agencies have similarly been lobbied to hire more people of color. Um, Avi Dan also says, quote, advertising continues to discriminate against African-Americans. Uh, that was something that we talked about at the end of our last episode, looking at the history of the industry, which was so, so, so white for so, so long. Um, and people of color continue to be very underrepresented and also underpaid compared to white coworkers. Yeah, African-Americans make up just 5% of the professional and management roles in advertising, and they're only about half as likely as their white colleagues to work in advertising agencies' creative and client services functions. Uh, not to mention, hello, that black college grads working in advertising earn 80 cents for every dollar earned by their equally qualified white counterparts. But even if people of color are, are paid equitably in agencies, that doesn't guarantee that the work environment um, is similarly <laughs> enriching. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's a way to put it. Um, for instance, for instance, I mean, I can't even believe this is an example. We have Campbell Ewald CEO Jim Palmer, who was fired. After a white creative leader at the agency's San Antonio office sent an email in October 2015 inviting staffers to take part in, no, we're not making this up, a ghetto day. Yeah, so you've got writer Jim Hoke. He's the one who sent out this awful email. Uh, he joined Campbell Ewald San Antonio as an executive creative director. I just want you to pin that in your brain that this jerk was a creative director. So anyway, he sent out this email. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he basically uses a lot of terrible language. He encourages people to pop a freak with us and says that you could enjoy ghetto music and malt 45s at lunch. 
And he closes it out by saying, word, my cerebral gangsters, which is honestly to me like, yeah, this guy's an idiot and he's clearly racist. But like also he, I think, thinks of himself a little highly to call himself cerebral. And there's also an issue of ageism that comes up a lot. Uh, more than 59 percent of employees in the ad industry are under 45 versus 50% of just all workers um, generally in the U.S. And the median age of workers in advertising is 38 versus close to 44 all workers. Um, so the they tend to be a little bit younger. Writers and art directors are usually between 25 and 35. So if you're older than that, as Avi Dan says, you've either made it to the executive floor or you've been downsized, or you've just left and started something else. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's not – well, and I feel like it's this way in a lot of creative or tech fields. Like, it's just not very welcoming to older people in those maybe, like, non-director positions. Um, okay, so we've told you kind of where the women are, but where are they not? Well, though would generally be the creative department uh, on the whole. And it's interesting to look at advertising from the same perspective we normally look at uh, STEM jobs with, because it sounds like creative departments on the whole have a leaky pipeline. Yeah, because portfolio schools are graduating equal, if not more numbers of women as men, but Women are still just 11.5% of ad agency creative directors. Um, and that actually is still high for a lot of companies. The 3% conference reached out to 328 women in both creative and non-creative roles. And 60% of them said that their current employer falls below that 11% mark. Yeah. So we also have to look at the biggest advertising bonanza in the United States, which is the Super Bowl. It's a great example. It's a great little microcosm of who's doing what, what advertising movers and shakers are rising to the top. Uh, if you look at the Super Bowls of 2010 and 2011, 94% of the creative directors of those ads aired during the Super Bowl were men. And of the 60 or so ads that aired during the 2010 game in particular, not one was led by a person of color. And that also translates to awards, which are huge in the industry. Um, the One Club has a Creative Hall of Fame, and out of its 53 members, a whopping six are women. Uh, in 2009, Ad Age published an A-list cover featuring one woman, and 10 men. <laughs> yeah. That one woman was Deutsche Inc. North America CEO Linda Sawyer. She's now actually moved up to chairman. Uh, and her take at the time was, quote, the C-suite remains oddly absent of women. Yeah. I mean, that A-list cover reminds me of the uh, Vanity Fair cover with the late night hosts. Yeah. But it was all men. For- they, they didn't even have a, a, a token, a token Linda. No, <laughs> there was no token Linda. If only we had more Lindas. Although, don't get me wrong, I don't think that Lin- Linda Sawyer is token by any means. No, Linda's the ba- boss lady. Linda, are you listening? <laughs> We're not taking you for granted, Linda. Please don't hate us. Um, but okay, so so go. Let's go back to the pipeline, though. Why are women walking away? Welcome to Sminty. It's really the same, it's the same old refrain that you hear in so many 
so many fields. Yeah. I mean, women are just lazy and would rather be shopping. Right. right? Exactly. Exactly. The women from our first episode on advertising were just too effective. (laughs) Yes. Uh, well, yeah. So basically, let's start with how few mentors there are. There's generally just low visibility of women in high ranking roles in the ad industry. And with so few women up at the tippy top, there's not a clear path for other women to follow, women who might have an eye on that creative director position. Um, there was a 2016 survey by Creative Equals and the Young Creative Council. And it was a little sad. 70% of the female creatives that they surveyed said that they had never worked with a female creative director or executive creative director. 88% said they lacked role models. And 60% said that advertising is a career that does not support families. Where you do see a really great example is one uh, displayed by Margaret Johnson as she has climbed up the ad ladder. In 2012, uh, Johnson became the executive creative director and partner at Goodby, Silverstein and Partners, where 64 percent of department heads are women. That's awesome. Um, and since her promotion, uh, female staffers agreement with the survey statement that they, quote unquote, feel empowered has more than tripled because it's great. It's wonderful that there are so many women department heads in this agency. That's fabulous. But to have a woman be in that executive creator, creative director position where so few women are, I can imagine that you as a, a lower rung employee trying to figure out what you're going to do with your career, that that is inspiring. Yeah, I mean, and it's just a great example of how it doesn't have to be the other way. Yeah. You know, there is a right way to do it. And I'll say that, you know, um, friends of mine who are in advertising, you know, where we're all around about 30 and the whole marriage and kids question is huge because mm-hmm. everyone pretty much knows like okay if i if i want to get my promotion i need to time it correctly if i want to have a kid because uh otherwise y- you're not going to really be able to do it and it's the same issue that came up in our architecture mm-hmm. episode where right around the same time that people are buckling down to climb on up it's when our ovaries are like, <laughs> hello, TikTok. <laughs> um, I'm filling up with cobwebs already. So, <laughs> or those just mine talking. How do you even clean cobwebs out of your ovaries? That's called your period, Carolyn. <laughs> oh, see, I didn't have proper sex yet. <laughs> so I wasn't sure what to do about the. Ovarian cobwebs. And the reason why this is such a crunch is because, especially in creative departments, you're regularly working until, you know, midnight to 3 a.m. I mean, and, and the thing is, and I'm saying this as an outsider, but talking to people who are insiders, the number of hours you work is a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. I have a very good friend who works at an agency um, whose boss, who's creative director, um, a fellow, said that, uh, you know, the team just wasn't working hard enough um, and y- you all should be here until 2 a.m. every night. 
and made them that night like stay and redo a whole project. And she was like, yeah, I went home at like 4 a.m. It's ridiculous. And what time does she have to be at work? Like 8 a.m. Oh, Lord. You know, you don't want to hang out with me if I've only had like two hours of sleep. <laughs> I assure you. Yeah, and I, it is. It's totally a badge of honor. And it's totally like it's the same kind of thing in journalism, like the the badge of honor of being in the trenches with your fellow sleep deprived alcoholics, you know, like. I, my creative director at that marketing, in-house marketing department, you know, she had two kids. She wanted a family. She was a total badass. She's so creative and funny and weird, like just the right kind of person you want to be a creative director. But that lifestyle was just not sustainable. And and she missed it. You know, she missed the fast pace. She missed uh, – I think she kind of liked the boys club. Um but if you want to have a life, you know, you you can't have it when you're working until three in the morning. It's just not uh, it's not doable. And this is something that uh, ad industry veteran Janet Keston has pointed out. Uh, Keston worked for Ogilvy and Mather, and she's since gone on with a partner to form uh, a group called Swim, whose purpose is to really like kind of mentor and guide young advertising newbies. But Keston says that while we're seeing more and more industries creating support systems for working moms, advertising is like way behind. She says we're so, as an industry, so beholden to timesheets and hours billed as a demonstration of the value provided. To me, that's a wrongheaded way to think about it now. The world has changed. And this also hammers home how if you are trying to do this, having a really supportive partner at home is really helpful because the ad industry culture rewards people who are so career focused and also career primary, not primary caregivers. Yeah. And so ad industry recruiters say that, you know, frankly, just being honest, it can be really hard to find women who've stayed long enough to reach that creative director point. Um, those who do stick around tend to have a partner whose career is secondary. And of course, that's talking about people with families. Like, we're not even talking about single people or whatever. Um, but yeah, if you're gonna be part of, if you're gonna be a leader in that cutthroat, uh, industry, um, where things are so fast paced and competitive, you, you have to be the career primary partner. And when you hear about certain gaffes, uh, happening among executives, it makes you wonder what is said about women behind closed doors. Because uh, in 2005, Neil French, who was the worldwide creative director for the giant ad holding company, WPP, um, said that there are so few female creative directors because women are crap. That's a quote. Crap at the job. And he referred to the time women spend nursing their newborns and claimed that, quote, women don't make it to the top because they don't deserve to. Now, of course, he then resigned. Um, but and of course, that was also 11 years ago. So we would hope that things have progressed since then. Unfortunately, <laughs> we also have in June 2016, RAP CEO, that's RAP acronym, R-A-P-P, 
this isn't that horrible creative director in San Antonio coming back again. Uh, rap CEO Alexei Orlov resigned after being sued for destructive behavior. Uh, the suit claimed that he had referred to multiple women as fat cows. Oh, it doesn't stop there. He told a Jewish employee that he was miserly with money. He refused to promote a female executive because she was too pretty. Uh, and he once told a meeting of approximately 70 employees in Dallas, mess with my brand or my direction and I will break off your finger and shove it up your beep. Um, which actually that last one I think is kind of funny. Uh, because I feel like I might have said something like that as a writer in an in-house marketing department more than once. And and it was a sentiment supported by my creative director. So, meh. so there you go. <laughs> Stop messing with our creative decisions, marketing team. Yeah, I feel like that statement of his is the the least offensive. <laughs> yeah, just because far you, and away. Just because you use a sort of bad word and threaten someone. That's. I feel like that's. The least, yeah, it's the least problematic of the rest of those things. Well, and the next thing that we have to tackle is the elephant in the industry right now that actually inspired us to take two episodes to look into it is sexual harassment because it is still a huge problem. And before we get into it, I just want to quickly travel back to our first episode and sort of where everything left off, where you have women being accepted into the early industry for their quote unquote female viewpoint to sell this idealized um, and sexualized often portrayal of women. Mm-hmm. And it seems like these same kinds of values are regurgitated and recycled within the industry itself. It's like, you know, maybe the, the ad folks thought they, they could outsmart the sexism they were selling, Mm. but indeed, no, not so. We're going to talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. Okay, so Kristen said that we were going to talk about the sexual harassment elephant. So, it's a big problem. It's a big elephant. (laughs) It's a big big old elephant. Um, We're going to start you off with some stats that seem pretty bad, and then they're going to get worse, okay? So I just want to prepare you. Uh, That 3% conference did a study. They found that 25% of women in advertising said that they had personally experienced gender discrimination. 23% said that they had personally experienced or witnessed sexual harassment. Okay, that's a large chunk. That's a quarter of ad women saying that they had experienced or witnessed sexual harassment. But that trade group, the four A's, they've done a more recent survey this year in 2016, and they found that more than half of the women that they surveyed had experienced sexual harassment at least once. And I would be willing to bet, as is the case so often, that that number is actually higher because you've got to keep in mind that there are people who love that culture, that rough and tumble, say whatever the F you want, fast paced, competitive, creative culture. They love it, even if 
a butt grab or a snide comment comes along with it. Yeah, I mean, and, and also just think about the fact that objectification is kind of part of the job. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to cast all of advertising as one giant villain, but... Um, and I'm sure that it's different from agency to agency and department to oh, department. Sure. Um, but you have a lot of elements just within the very work that you're doing that it seems like would, would foster that kind of behavior. Also in 2016, uh, in March, JWT's chief communications officer, Aaron Johnson, filed a suit against Gustavo Martinez, the chief executive. And this lawsuit has kind of sent ripples across the industry. Um, Johnson alleges that he subjected employees to, quote, an unending stream of racist and sexist comments, as well as unwanted touching and other unlawful conduct, and that he made numerous comments about rape and on multiple occasions, quote, grabbed Johnson by the throat and by the back of her neck. Yeah. Okay. So that leads me to a quote that I, my eyes almost bugged out of my head because here's the thing. There is that stuff going on, but a lot of the sexism in the industry tends to be more insidious. It tends to be a little more under the surface, uh, in terms of excluding women or, or whatever rather than like outright physical Assault, basically. And the New York Times did some great interviews with a bunch of badass boss ladies in advertising and media. And one of the women literally had the quote of, yeah, all that rapey talk happens, but a lot of the sexual harassment uh, is just more in attitudes. It's more systemic and under the surface. It's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you, you just dismissed rapey talk? Oh, Okay. So maybe perhaps there's a little bit of like a boys will be boys attitude going on. And um, the by far and away, the the type of of sexism that was discussed uh, loudly by women in the industry was just the issue of being ignored and excluded and overlooked. So the women in this New York Times article cited things like being left out of business meetings that were couched in social events. So not going to the golf game, the steak dinner, the box seats, the scotch drinking sesh, all of those dude club activities where it's like, no, this is just for the boys. Um, in some cases, literally being overlooked, uh, men assuming you're not the partner or the boss or the director, whoever you are, um, but also being overlooked for promotions and decision-making roles. 33% of women in one of those four A's surveys said that there have been at least a few times when they haven't received the assignments of promotions they wanted because of outright discrimination, and 42% told the survey takers that discrimination had led to their exclusion from decision making. So uh, no big surprise that more than half of respondents in that 4A survey said that their gender made them feel either somewhat or very vulnerable to discrimination. And almost two thirds either agreed somewhat or totally that there were times that they personally experienced discrimination without even recognizing it. Only in hindsight, are you like, oh, Wait, what? Oh. Well, yeah, that's part of the thing of like if if something if you feel that something's just an aspect of the culture and that you again are just in the trenches at 4 a.m. with your coworkers, you you might not think of it necessarily as discrimination or as completely outlandish and uncalled for. And the thing is, it's not that women have not tried to call it out. 
Uh, but again, you have to keep in mind the culture. Um, also in the New York Times, a lot of those women that they talked to said that when they have tried to have discussions about sexism in the office, male executives tend to become very uncomfortable and close the conversation very quickly, whether we're talking about um gender discrimination or racial discrimination. Yeah, and, and a lot of those women themselves said that they had trouble even bringing up the issue of sexism or gender bias in the industry. And a lot of the women would not, even to the New York Times, provide specifics about gender bias or harassment or anything like that that they'd seen because they were more concerned about protecting their relationships in the industry. And there just seems to be a general attitude um among too many male leaders in the industry that it's just someone else's problem, which leads us to the ouster of uh, Saatchi and Saatchi chairman Kevin Roberts, who was also the head coach at the advertising agency's parent company, a publicist group, who said that he just doesn't spend any time on gender issues at his agencies at all. I mean, I don't know if Roberts was doing conducting this business insider interview over some scotches <laughs> because he just said so so many mind-boggling and just blind statements about how yeah. like no, you know this uh, really doesn't exist. I mean, he was like, the issue's way worse in sectors like financial services where there are problems left, right, and center. Uh, the Essentially trying to claim that sexism within the advertising industry is a moot point and it's solved. And at one point, it kind of seemed like he was trying to say that we, since we recognize that there had been a problem, that that's all the progress we need, but that that the debate he he framed it as the debate over gender discrimination is over, which I was like, maybe he means that, like, we aren't debating that it's a fact anymore. But then as he continued talking and completely marginalizing women's experiences of gender discrimination and sexual harassment, it became very clear that Mr. Roberts was very out of touch. Yeah, I mean, he basically said that, well, my group doesn't have a problem because there are so many women in uh, there are so many women on staff. So we don't we don't need to worry about it. Um, and he even took like you could almost read that article and be like, I OK, I can see like the people who are defending you and saying that you're misunderstood. Like I can almost see where they're coming from. But he takes all of these pot shots at Cindy Gallup, who is another ad industry veteran and someone who is a very vocal and active advocate for diversity um, in the industry. And she so she would not be one of those women in The New York Times who was unwilling to speak about sexism or, or gender bias. Uh, and he basically said that uh, Cindy just wants to get up on her soapbox and get attention. Yeah, she's just kind of making it up, kicking up some dirt. Um, and he patted himself on the back because, granted, Publicist Group does have about a 50-50 gender split among its staff, um, while around 65% of Sachi and Sachi is female, you know, so... Looking in his own backyard, he's like, yeah, sexual discrimination does not exist. 
But then the point where I was like, oh, no, where I started, stopped giving him any benefit of any doubt was when when he starts spiraling into this whole idea that millennial women don't want to be creative directors and executives. They just enjoy doing the work. He said, quote, their ambition is not a vertical ambition. It's this intrinsic circular ambition to be happy. To which I wanted to throw my laptop out the window because I have felt that sentiment directly from male managers before. And, oh, it's making me so mad just to think about right now the idea that I derive just pleasure solely from my work and I don't need to be compensated equitably for that. No, you are sorely mistaken, bruh. Women are a flat circle. (sighs) Women's ambition is a flat circle. Um, well, the fallout is that he was immediately forced to take a leave about of absence, but rather than being fired, he is resigning and his last day was set to be September 1st. And the, the plus side of that Business Insider article, which, oh my gosh, I just wonder for that journalist, like as the interview was happening, you know, if they were thinking like, oh my God, this is, well, is, is, is this real? Is this really happening? Like. The way it's written, the journalist keeps saying like, and and then we brought up the issue of this, and he said this crazy thing, yeah, and then we we said, well, wait, but what about this? And he said this crazy thing. <laughs> and he, yeah, at certain points it seems like the journalist was trying to kind of help him out a little bit, but nope, Kevin Roberts, you know, he he really knows women, <laughs> so <laughs> he should get like a Cosmo column or something. <laughs> um, but but the the great thing was to kind of watch it unfold. Uh, through Cindy Gallup's Twitter <laughs> because, you know, she she was right. Um, yeah. And this has kicked off this larger conversation that a lot of people are having, uh, both because of um, that lawsuit that Aaron Johnson brought, also, of course, um, Kevin Roberts leaving and that 4A's survey finding so much sexual harassment, it seems like, you know, the industry is at this point of like, OK, what are we going to do about this? Yeah, well, they I mean, they better be asking themselves that because there are far broader implications for all of this nastiness than just kind of a hostile working environment. I mean, if we're looking inside the agencies, like if you're working in this type of environment, female creatives or people of color in general might struggle to get new ideas approved or pushed through if the bulk of creative directors are white men, which the bulk of creative directors are white men. Um, and, you know, this ends up creating this inherent bias in portrayals of women and people of color in the actual advertisements themselves. Because think about it. Here in 2016, still a lot of the ads we see uh, fall back on stereotypical gender roles to say nothing of heteronormativity. I mean, when you see... The occasional ad with like a same sex couple or an interracial couple. I mean, there's a lot of like to me warm fuzzies, but to the rest of the Internet, a lot of people are freaking out. Yeah. Oh, oh, for the day when um, a same sex couple co- commercial doesn't go viral. You know what I mean? Because it's not it's not such a such an extraordinary thing to see. Right. And then when you are looking outside of the agency at female consumers, one massive problem that results from having these 
inherent biases in the creators is that female consumers don't end up seeing themselves properly reflected in the ads they're looking at, even though women control about 80 percent of consumer spending. Yeah, there was um, a study conducted by Unilever, which found that 40 percent of women don't recognize the faces being reflected back at them in advertising. Uh, in other words, when I'm watching one of those yogurt commercials <laughs> where the women treat eating yogurt like winning the lottery or really more accurately, like having really terrific sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that woman <laughs> like that woman is not me. And I like yogurt, Caroline. <laughs> she eat, does. She really does. I eat yogurt almost every day. She really does. Um, do I want to date yogurt? <laughs> no. Do I want to spend a Friday night in with a silk robe on with my yogurt? Is yogurt a Swedish man? <laughs> yogurt. <laughs> Maybe so then. If yogurt were my Swedish masseuse, <laughs> then we can talk. <laughs> Perfect. But okay, so Unilever, Unilever broke it down. Like, why are women not recognizing themselves reflected in these ads? And it's because, according to their tally, just 3% of the women in the advertisements were portrayed in leadership roles. 2% were portrayed as intelligent and 1% were portrayed as funny. I mean, this should be no surprise. Hello, just like think of like dish soap ads, right? Where the the wife is a buzzkill. She's wearing a green V-neck sweater. Uh, she's got to like take care of the kids and she's yelling at the husband and the dad is a doofus, which, by the way, is something that Cindy Gallup also takes issue with. It's not just portraying women as idiots, but it's portraying men as idiots, too. Like, and and I feel like there's a greater cultural push against both of those things beyond just Cindy Gallup's efforts. I feel like more people are waking up to the fact of like, hey, not all men are idiots in the kitchen or idiots with their children, just the same way as not all women are hanging out in the kitchen with their kids all day. Yeah, and th- and that's a form of sexism as well. Um, yeah, it's, and and speaking of those dishwashing detergent commercials, there was one um, not too long ago where. These two women, I want to say they were sisters, and one was really good at getting her dishes really spotless, and the other one wasn't so good at it. And they had this whole rivalry because of it. (laughs) It's just like, again, who are those women? (laughs) Like, because let me know so I can make sure I'm never around them. Unless they want to talk dishwasher loading, in which case... You know, I enjoy it. You have a lot to say there. I know. Um, but the whole thing about that Unilever 40% figure is that it might actually in reality be worse. So Kat Gordon, who's the founder and creative director of the marketing agency Maternal Instinct, which she started because she was like, marketing to mothers is the worst. Like people are terrible at it. Uh, she cited a study in which 90% of female consumers said brands didn't understand them. So what irony, looking back at our first episode, where women were first hired into the industry at the turn of the century for the female point of view mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get into women's heads. And now today, in 2016, 90% of female customers think that brands don't understand them. Yeah. Well, but I guess the silver lining of that is I feel better about like strangers around me on the street because that just means like 
I have more in common with stranger ladies than I than I thought I did, because if those ads are speaking, if many if if the majority of ads are speaking to a lot of women, I again, like, who are these yogurt ladies laughing over over dairy products and salads? And who are the women like in fields with balloons and birth control ads? I mean, honestly, I'd go to that field. I wish I identified with with that carefree balloon holding woman. Birth control meadow, <laughs> contraception cavern. Uh, contraception cavern. Is that where yogurt lives? <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it's not just female consumers not seeing themselves represented well. Um, arguably, it's even worse for older people, people of color, of course, same-sex couples, gender non-conforming people. Well, sure. I mean, let's let's get stereotypical here. I mean, you see old. Older people or elderly people in like Viagra ads. Uh, when I am watching CNN in the late morning hours, I see black people in ads when it's for like predatory lending stuff and, and things like terrible insurance companies. Um, and same sex couples again, like I think they had that one soup ad that time and, or cereal and I've like never seen them again. Well, that, the Cheerios was oh, yeah. the, the biracial couple. Oh, okay. Hallmark does oh. its, you know, Valentine's Day same sex couple um commercials so maybe you know diversity is just kind of seasonal for you know for different <laughs> holidays we trot out like a different group like handing out candy like well here here's yours um yeah you know but, and and uh, people just deserve better people deserve better and it might sound silly to say because it's like it's just advertising why why should someone who's 70 care if they're not because they don't stop being a person with needs and wants they don't stop being a consumer if anything the older you get the more established in your life and your bank account you are so, I mean, older people are basically like the most important people that uh, politicians pander to because they're the ones who go out and vote. But apparently they're not worth like putting in advertising. And it matters, too, because advertising influences and reinforces our stereotypes and our biases mm-hmm. about all of these different groups of people. Obviously, like advertising is not going to bring us world peace, but good grief, they can definitely do better. And a lot of people in the industry want it to do better. Yeah. So Janet Keston, whom we cited earlier, points out uh, very helpfully that the role of women isn't a women's issue. It's a human issue. Everybody needs to be part of it for things to change. Of course, that sort of echoing Hillary Clinton's speech back in the 90s. Um, and again, you know, I said that she started swim with her partner. That partner is Nancy Vonk. And so they are pushing to get more women included and heard and hired in advertising and mentoring them as well. Um, and, you know, like I said earlier, there's a lot of talk now about childcare assistance, uh, destigmatizing flex time. So like, you know, it's great to have a flexible job where you're not shunned for like, I don't know, going to the doctor. Um, there's talk around the wage gap. Obviously, that's a huge conversation. And even implementing bias training, which I think sounds amazing and should be mandatory for every human person. Yeah, because we all have biases. We yeah. all have internal biases, regardless of how, you know, perfectly social justice warrioring we might be. Um, and, and finally, too, accentuating 
the positives happening within the industry by spotlighting women's accomplishments instead of, I don't know, like being a couple of feminist podcasters talking about how terrible it is for an hour. Exactly. Well, one person who's definitely been working to affect positive change is Nancy Hill, who is the president and CEO for now of of the four A's. I think she's stepping down here pretty soon. But uh, she says that we need to start at the top and that every ad CEO, ad agency CEO, needs to make him or herself the company's chief diversity officer, basically. Make it your personal business to ensure that there's a diversity of viewpoints. Uh, Cindy Gallup, who we've cited a couple times now, says that there's a rot at the top of the industry spreading and still spreading in the most appalling way and that it needs to be stopped in its tracks. And uh, Hill says one way to do that is to encourage young women to pursue leadership positions, begin that bias training that we mentioned, and also level hiring practices. She recommends, and some agencies do this, uh, implementing a blind resume process where um, any gender or ethnic identifiers at all are redacted, basically. But one thing I want to mention with uh, the tip to encourage young women to pursue leadership positions is Nancy Hill. That is a great idea. But remember that mentor mm-hmm. gap. I mean, we still <laughs> women also need those role models. Yeah, too. Exactly. Because to me, it's just much easier said than done to uh, make that happen. You can encourage women all day long, but if they don't actually have the resources to move up, then what are you going to do? Right. And one thing I think that's worth uh, reiterating, we read it in some of the sources for this episode. We've obviously read it in sources for many an episode of Sminty. Um, but change doesn't just happen. Um, we like to think that it will. Like, I'm a woman. I'm here. Surely things are getting better. That's a fallacy. Uh, just because you are a woman in the room uh, doesn't mean that other women will somehow benefit from that just happening. And so it's really on uh, kind of every everybody in the ad industry. These these women have argued to help lift other women up and encourage them and serve as those role models. And we hope to hear from a lot of you listening. Um, I know that there are a lot of folks in the ad industry listening to this podcast right now. Guys, we want to hear from you as well. Um, because, you know, we, we could really talk about this for hours and hours. We have just offered a very broad brush, um, assessment of the bad things that are happening. So, I mean, obviously, like, Positive stuff we would love to hear. Personal experience we would love to hear. And also, I mean, is it really on the ground day to day? Is it as toxic as the headlines would suggest? And as Cindy Gallup would suggest. Um, also, Cindy Gallup, if you're listening, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I love your Twitter. Um, but we want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us. At Mom Stuff Podcast, you can message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. All right. Well, I have a letter here from Chisa in response to our gymnastics episode. Uh, so Chisa is one of the gymnastics experts that we asked to write in. She says that she's a judge, a coach, and a former gymnast. And so she has some some sense. Some two cents to throw in for us. So, regarding makeup, 
100% not required. It is totally the preference of the gymnast and not at all an aspect of the scoring. A better gymnast without makeup will absolutely beat the dolled up gymnast. As a judge, you're watching the body, not the hair or the face. Regarding the hair, same. Hair can be worn in any style they choose with the main goal of keeping it out of the face, which is for injury prevention. This only becomes a part of scoring if the hair indeed does get in the gymnast's way and impacts her performance. The part about people talking about Gabby's hair is completely ridiculous and they're awful. Regarding nail polish, old school rule, it was abolished about 10 years ago. Back in the day, it was considered distracting. But you'll see in Rio that many of the gymnasts get cute patriotic manis. So yay for getting rid of weird old rules. Regarding the sparkly leotards. I heard a lot in the Olympics broadcast about the shiny and sparkly leos that were purchased for thousands of dollars to, quote, make the gymnasts stand out. I can guarantee that the judges, especially at the level the Olympic judges are, are absolutely not taking leotards, shininess, sparkliness into consideration for scoring. To me, it's a silly do-whatever-it-takes mentality cultivated over longtime weird legends in the sport. Because I totally used to play into it as a gymnast, but as a judge, I never remember a leotard. I remember the gymnast and the skills she is doing. The audience should totally appreciate a beautiful leo for what it is, though. Regarding smiling, there is one specific rule in the book regarding this, stating that the routine, quote, should reflect the gymnast's personality and personal performance style. As you can see when watching a gymnast like Lori Hernandez on the floor, it is much more appealing to watch for both the audience and judges alike when they have some showmanship. Therefore, this very small deduction is input in order to reward eye-catching routines like this. No specific rules about actually smiling. Regarding open-ended scoring, I agree with you about how limiting the 10 was. Open-ended scoring is used only in professional-level gymnastics as it does encourage difficulty and separate those who perform it. You can see how much it has advanced in the time since the change was implemented. See Simone Biles. For example, if Mary Lou Retton was performing today, her routines are child's play next to the routines of today, also due to technology increases, etc. So... A solution was needed to reward today's better routines. Another important note, the execution score, the number from which the judges take the often referenced deductions, is still out of a 10 and is just added on to with difficulty points. Therefore, gymnasts are still technically striving for the perfect 10 execution. She says, sorry for the novel. Go dogs." <laughs> well, thank you, Tisa. Well, I've got a letter here from Julie about our emotional cheating episode, and she writes, I won't bore you with the details, but the gist is that I've had a work spouse for the past few years, and I really cherish his friendship. You hit the nail on the head in the work spouse episode. We're both married to other people, though, and your emotional cheating episode was a swift knock upside the head. It made me realize that he and I had been in an emotional danger zone, if not worse, for months, and our drunken kiss 10 days ago can't be solely blamed on having too much to drink at that work happy hour. The podcast helped me see that I've become too comfortable with my work spouse, and I need to change my relationship with him. Thankfully, I changed jobs last week, and now I work more closely with my husband, so I feel good about my marriage. But if it hadn't been for your podcast, I probably would have brushed that kiss under the rug as a drunken mistake and assumed that he and I could still be close friends. So I wanted to say thanks for helping me to steer my path back toward my husband. I know we've never met, but I wanted you to both know that you're making a meaningful difference in people's lives, and we, or at least I, appreciate what you both do. Please keep it up. Oh, Julie, I'm so glad that we could be of help. 
Um, and I'm really glad that you were able to hop right out of your job and hang more with your husband. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for your emails. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you too can learn even more about women in advertising, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 